I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. To accomplish FEMA's mission, we work with governments at all levels to ensure the agency is helping people before, during, and after disasters. One special relationship that federal agencies, such as FEMA, have is the relationship with tribal nations, since the federal government has a treaty and trust relationships with tribes. In that same vein, tribal emergency management is very different compared to emergency management at the local or state level. In this episode, Troy Christensen from the FEMA podcast team speaks with two tribal emergency managers about what makes their job unique. Also, stick around for a bonus segment after the episode. You won't want to miss it as we explore one tribal elected official's take on why investments in emergency management is a top priority. I'm here with Tim Zentek, emergency manager from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks uh, for inviting me, Troy. And also uh, Paul Downing, the emergency manager for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Paul, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey into the position you are now as an emergency manager. Hmm. So I retired from the Army, and I was looking for something to occupy my time. The tribe had a need for an emergency manager. I really didn't know what it was. Once I started to get into what emergency management was all about, it was not far removed from what I did in the military. So for some reason, I just like a fish to water. It seems like all this stuff comes very easily to me. And so I started working with my tribe, the Passamaquoddy Tribe of Indian Township, spent a few years there, and then the pandemic kicked off, and I went to the Passamaquoddy Tribe of Pleasant Point and worked for them for almost two years and Seminole Tribe of Florida Public Safety Director met me in Washington, D.C. when I was there for USET um, and started trying to recruit me. So after a year and a half, I finally gave in and I'm there as the Director of Emergency Management in Seminole Tribe of Florida. Great. And Tim, what about you? Tell us about your background. So I started my career in 1980. Um, actually worked in the automotive industry and for probably 20 something years in automotive industry. And, uh, during that time I was, uh, I only worked at like four different locations or four different companies. And, uh, during that time I was, uh, the safety manager for every place I worked. Um, after 20 years of working in the auto industry, I uh, found a job working for my tribe, the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. They asked me to come and, and be their uh, safety director and director of housekeeping. So uh, that started in the year 2000. And three months later, we were hit with an ice storm. And that's where I started working with FEMA. And then a month after that, we had another ice storm. So I got pretty acquainted with FEMA and working with FEMA. At that time, we were going under the state as subrecipients. Um, we did um, uh, had some questionable, I guess, um, relations with the state. And uh, once they seen the emergency or the safety part of my position um, and understood the importance of having emergency management. Uh, we kind of created an emergency management program, and I, I started the program on my own without the um, blessing from the leadership. 
but then later on, they realized that uh, that was a good thing that I did that. Um, and then uh, I was like, see, I believe we were like number six in the nation. The Citizen Pottawatomie Nation was number six in the nation to actually have an approved mitigation plan. Um, back in 2005, um, I'm in the middle of our what third update, I think. Uh, so uh, through that, I also had uh, worked with the uh, Emergency Management Institute uh, on several of the focus groups to build uh, what now is the tribal curriculum and have been a part of all of the updates and focus groups on each of those. Uh, see, I am the longest tenured adjunct instructor for Emergency Management Institute um, and have taught over half of the 574 federally recognized tribes in class. Um, I currently sit, uh, I think I'm in my 11th year as a member of the Regional Advisory Council for Region 6. Um, I was a founding member of the Intertribal Emergency Management Coalition of Oklahoma uh, that uh, I'm told is one of the longest running coalitions of emergency management in the country. Uh, several other states and regions have uh, requested that we help them develop a similar program. Um, in fact, this, the tribes or Pueblos in the state of New Mexico has taken uh, our bylaws and have built their own item C. In fact, they, they just put Southwest item C in front of it and uh, they are in the process of building that. So um, I think um, Northwestern United States, Washington, I think has one now, uh, seven tribes in it. Uh, so it, it's been a wild and interesting ride. Um, we've uh, applied for several um, mitigation grants and received some grants, built some safe rooms. Um, and actually today, what they told me last week was that we have built the largest safe room uh, in the history of FEMA. Uh, so it's a, we're pretty proud of it. It's a 25,000 square foot safe room and it's two story. And, and Tim, you mentioned, you know, you're from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. T tell me a little bit about the risks and hazards you face for people who may not be familiar with, with your nation? So Citizen Potawatomi Nation is located about 30 miles east of Oklahoma City in Oklahoma. Uh, we have virtually all of the uh, hazards that FEMA wants to um, consider when you're writing your mitigation plan. Uh, we've had uh, floods, we've had tornadoes, uh, earthquakes, Winter storms, snowstorms, um, haven't had an avalanche yet, but um, I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but we um, we we sit between two waterways, and so we when we first wrote our mitigation plan, the team thought, you know, we're going to have tornadoes is going to be our number one threat. Well, as we got into the risk assessment, we figured out that um, the most often threat that we had and the most uh, damaging threat we had was flooding. And so it, because of the risk assessment, we changed our way of thinking. Tornado was number two, but flooding was number one. And we 
We've done quite a bit of mitigation with uh, with our flooding efforts. Um, we have uh, the one that's called Squirrel Creek that runs within uh, 100 feet of our uh, administration building that was notorious for flooding. Every time we get, you know, two to three inches of rain, it would flood. Well, uh, one of the mitigation projects we do that's ongoing is that we go down that channel and clear out all of the debris. Uh, that might be fallen trees or it might be uh, someone has thrown, we've pulled car doors out of the creek, but anything that slows the, the flow down, we, we remove it and um, dispose of it. Um, so virtually that's, that has decreased our chances for flood immensely. Um, and we did a flood study in 2004 and found that um, we, we found a way that we could um, even decrease the risk for flooding even more. Uh, and that project is still ongoing. It's not quite complete yet, but we have made a remarkable difference. Um, we, we dug, um, uh, it's actually, a, we call it an agricultural drainage ditch uh, that actually will move the water from Squirrel Creek into the North Canadian that borders on the other side of the, of the complex uh, before it gets to the complex. Uh, which will take several hundred acres out of the floodway once we get done with our flood study that we're doing now. That's fantastic. And Paul, I'm, I'm guessing you don't have to worry about avalanches as well, just like Tim. But you know, tell tell us a little bit about about some of the threats for your from your perspective. And uh, I'm sure I can guess a few uh, being down in Florida, but take it away. Well, the primary threat in our area is flooding and hurricanes. Um, Florida as a state is a very low state sea level wise. So if you have storm surge coming from the East Coast or the West Coast, we tend to get inundated a lot further inland. Um, this last hurricane that we just had, Hurricane Ian, um, we had tribal members that lived in the Naples community, but the by and large, the reservations, um, the track of the storm kind of almost went in between them all the way up. So we, we had a lot of the peripheral damage, wind, rain, et cetera, but we didn't get the eye of the storm through it. And of course, severe weather, extended power outages, all of those things, um, much like any other jurisdiction. And it's just, I have seven communities that we have to um, tend to, seven separate reservations, and they go from Tampa all the way as far south as Miami and as far north as Fort uh, Pierce. So it's, it's a pretty good um, geographic footprint that we tend to. You know, we've, we've got a lot of listeners that are emergency managers at all levels of government, from local to state, tribal. But I guess my first question is, what aspects of tribal emergency management make it distinctly different uh, from other jurisdictions, in your opinion? There's 574 federally recognized tribes, and each one of them have a unique uh, form of government. Uh, some of them have elections every four years. Some of them have elections every one year. Um, some of the tribes are, um, you know, the Cherokees, the Navajos have, you know, what are they now, 375,000 members. Uh, there are some tribes that only have a few hundred. So there's a very broad, broad uh, difference between all of them. Um, Emergency management part of it is um, 
the same. Um, some of the larger tribes have more funding, have a very robust emergency management programs. And there are some tribes that don't have any emergency management program whatsoever, but it's simply because they just can't afford it. Um, as far as the differences in government, uh, we had a recently changed our form of government from a business committee aspect to a legislature where we have 16 members uh, that are uh, half of them are live within the state of Oklahoma. The other half live uh, into different uh, districts throughout the United States. And um, they come together via virtual or in person um, every quarter and discuss the, the tribe's business. We split our government up that way and moved them out into the regions where they can um, better serve the people that, that are citizens of Citizen Potawatomi Nation, can go to their representatives in their region and discuss any issues that they may have or uh, some changes that they may want to see or have input to the government. And, and um, it's, it's been remarkable. It it's, uh, works very well. Um, and we've had a lot of input from around the rest of the country because now they have a chance to. So I think one of the primary differences that I would say between working with a tribal government emergency management program and many other jurisdictions is we are the federal, we are the state, we are the county, we are the local emergency management in one office, very often in just one person. So that person, and as I sit here and listen to discussions that we're having in our meeting here, um, we don't have the luxury of having a hazard mitigation officer or a planner or a preparedness, you know what I mean? So we have to, we have to have all of those skill sets under one person very often. Um, listening to the conversations of, of public assistance complexities and, and dealing with the PA portal that FEMA has now, um, we have to become sort of subject matter experts on every level. So it's just a little bit different. Um, but I think we, because we're more versatile, we tend to get a lot of skill sets that other jurisdictions may not have because they operate within their silo of recovery. They operate in their silo of mitigation. Tribes don't have that luxury, so we have to be that more flexible, a little bit more versatile. Um, we may not have the the depth of expertise that somebody that is working in that silo has, but we have just enough to get us by. And then we very often have a wide network. Uh, Tim is part of my network. When I don't know, I can reach out and say, hey, have you ever had this? So we do a lot of intercommunications between emergency management offices, tribal. That's, that's great. I mean, I think both of you have overlapping jurisdictions, right? So you have, you know, you're working with emergency managers, maybe at a town or county level as well. For emergency managers who may not have that experience in working with tribal nations, is there anything that you would recommend or suggest for them, um, especially for new emergency managers out there? Yeah, get out boots on the ground, go introduce yourself to the, the surrounding communities. Um, take the time to get to know the people um, before there's an incident and, and don't give up. Don't ever give up. Always go and, and, and don't go in, ask for things, go in to, to share and, and get to know the people. Um, 
from the surrounding jurisdictions that's within our community and, and our jurisdiction. Because um, we go from, we're in uh, four counties um, and several communities uh, that we work alongside with county emergency management, uh, city emergency management, uh, supply resources that they may not have or vice versa. Uh, but we, to, to us at, at CPN, our community is our entire jurisdiction and everybody that lives in it. A and we want to be a part of bringing them through recovery and response. Um, so, uh, my advice to them is to don't give up, go to the fire chief's meeting, go to the emergency management meetings and conferences and get to know not just the, the local and state assets, but also get to know FEMA and, and get to know the people that you're going to be working with because it, it's not a matter of if you're going to be hit, it's when. It's a fantastic point. Paul? I think... Um a, I'll, I'll absolutely agree with everything Tim just said. It's that integration, interaction with local jurisdictions. And the other part is education of oneself, education of your partners that are surrounding your jurisdiction on what your tribe has for assets, what they have for capacity and capabilities. Sometimes, um, and uh, Tim actually has a, a very well-written um and I won't call it a story, but an example of it, very often tribes are the only source of emergency management or um, resources for jurisdictions because if they're more rural, sometimes their states don't really supply or support them. Their tax bases are too slow, et cetera. So we offer those colorless threads of assistance and say, yes, you're within close proximity to our jurisdiction. We're going to help you. Um, and I used the story of Tim's um, distribution of the uh, COVID vaccines. They were the first in the nation uh, to enter in that. And I'll, I'll not steal your thunder. I'll let you share that portion of it. <laughs> so when the vaccines come out, actually prior to that, when the, before the vaccines were actually rolled out to the public, um, we had a... Um, forethought, I guess, that we knew that the vaccine would have to be stored at an ultra-cold storage. Well, that's 72 degrees below zero. And we didn't have a, any place to store vaccines. And we found out later that there was nowhere else in the state that did either. So our leadership opted to go ahead and buy um, enough capacity to store at minus 72 degrees Fahrenheit uh, 438,000 doses of the vaccine. And we partnered with the state, we partnered with the county, and we partnered with the uh, uh, local tribes and the Indian Health Service uh, to be a hub for them to bring their, um, the, ship the vaccines to us. We put it in ultra cold storage and then they would come and pick it up, package it, and deliver it to wherever they needed it to go. And uh, it worked out very well. In fact, we, we still do that today. So uh, it, it's been a, a partnership built that has uh, gone far and beyond. That's great. So, you know, thinking ahead to the future, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that you encounter in tribal emergency management within your programs? So for 
emergency management in general, uh, one of the biggest hurdles that I see, and especially for the smaller tribes that don't have an emergency management program or may have one guy like myself, I have six departments that I run. And um, funding is always the issue. Um, since the conception of FEMA, FEMA has had a program where they were funding the states to build capacity and capability, but not the tribes. And we still don't have that. And um, without that funding, it, it's, it's, it's difficult for a tribe to make the determination to pay for an emergency manager when they could be buying medicine for some tribal member that's ill or paying medical expenses. So it, it's, it, it's not a good situation. And, and to make it even worse is that like the state, the size of the state collects state taxes on every dollar that's spent. The tribes don't have that. It's in a much smaller capacity. We're limited on the, where we can charge taxes or collect taxes. So we don't have the revenue flow that the state does, but the state gets the money, and then some of it is supposed to be passed down to the tribes, and usually that's a very, very small amount, or it may go to one tribe and leave the other 38 tribes in the state without. So um, to me, the, the funding is probably one of the biggest challenges for emergency management in the tribal world. And Paul, tell me about, uh, you know, some of your view of the biggest challenges within your emergency management program. So it's twofold, in my opinion. One is the funding mechanism. Because there is no consistent funding, some tribes will get a little bit to start a program, and then they run out of money. Then there are others that have never received any level of funding to develop capacity and capability. So there's that portion. Then you have the, um, I just call it inequities, that tribal leadership, by and large, even tribal citizens don't really understand the mechanism of what emergency management is. All they see is FEMA. So FEMA is not emergency management. It's two completely separate thought processes, et cetera. And so it's an educational thing. We're trying to combat that. We, we, we started the effort, uh, FEMA, at, uh, the tribal curriculum. So both of us are instructors for the FEMA tribal curriculum. And then we took it a step further. Now we're doing a train the trainer program for emergency managers from the tribal perspective. So it's tribal members teaching tribal members what emergency management is. And then you compound that with Many tribes of, of the U.S. have been taught, and this is just my opinion, taught the superstition of if you prepare for disaster, you invite disaster. I think that was created in order to create that dependency. Oh, you can't plan. You can't plan or prepare. We'll do it for you. So by creating that, that stigma of not preparing for disaster, you create dependency on somebody outside of the tribe. So we're changing the dynamic of the language to create resiliency. We're going to build resiliency, which is what we've always been, time immemorial. If we weren't resilient, we never would have persevered to this state today. So another aspect and, and issue, I guess you could say, uh, with working with tribal governments is 
the, the land. Mm. Um, you don't drive a 30,000-pound water truck out there on, on some of the pr uh, properties that the tribe owned from their cultural aspect. Um, it, it's And those are private places that may be ceremonial lands that that you just don't you don't go. And it's a um, trying to get a outside non-native to understand what that means uh, to the culture of a, the native tribe is is uh, difficult. They, they, it's very difficult for them to comprehend that that's our culture. And we rely on these lands for medicines, and, and a lot of times it's food, or or whatever, and and it may be ceremonial grounds, but for those places, there's there's not supposed to be anybody there. And I've known tribes that have had some very uh, horrific things that have happened to their ceremonial lands and their gardens, they call them, um, that have been destroyed by natural disasters. But how do you put a price tag on that? Exactly. So I use the analogy um, when people were telling me, oh, well, it's, ju it's just, you know, burial grounds. It's nothing like, you know, come on, there, there's skeletons, there's dust, et cetera. So I always use the, the story of, well, did you hear of the oil discovery under Arlington National? And they kind of look at me like, what? And I was like, oh, this is a huge, huge oil reserve under Arlington National. Um, so the federal government's just going to tap it. Um, they're going to remove all the headstones and, uh, and they're going to transplant all of those soldiers and everybody that died there. We're going to move them off. I said, it's no big deal. It's going to be, you know, 20, 20, 30 miles away and we're going to tap all the oil. So instead of Arlington National, there'll be just a couple oil wells there. But just imagine the production that they'll get. And are you OK with that? And they're like shock. And no, you, you can't do that. Well. You want to do it to our culture, but you don't want to have it in your culture. So it's that whole not in my backyard mentality. That's a great perspective. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I love, I love that. Uh, you know, so looking ahead to the future, uh, I'll start with you, Paul. Where do you see tribal emergency management evolving in the future? If you had a crystal ball. If I had a crystal ball, I think I think the pandemic is is always going to be looked upon as a good and a bad thing. So it opened up the eyes to a lot of tribal governments of what emergency management really is. It's not just the FEMA disaster. It's not just the catastrophic event. It's all of the things that you do to prepare for that catastrophic event. So when it occurs, it is a lower impact developing that resiliency. So I think that's the message that I'm going to try to push out and, and things that I'm going to do, efforts that I'm working on, both with Congress and the Senate, letter writing campaigns. And we've been doing it for more than a couple of years, um, but it does take time. And I've always said you can't move a mountain, but you can ship away one rock at a time and eventually you're going to move that mountain. So that's us from the tribal perspective. We're not looking to move the mountain because it's not going to move, but we're going to chip away at it and move it bit by bit until we have that level playing field. Because honestly, if you have a level playing field, look at what we're in right here. Go to Tim's reservation, go to mine. Um, and you look at the tribes that are funded that create their own funding mechanism, or they've taken advantage and received grants to create that 
uh, emergency management footprint and you're maturing. And as you build, you look at these resilient locations and realize that could be every jurisdiction in America. So futuristic, my crystal ball, we're going to create that what success looks like. And we're going to be that platform and model, not only for Indian country, but for all jurisdictions by and large. That's my prediction. Uh, I absolutely agree with Paul. Um, you can't move a, a mountain, but you can move it a little at a time. And it's been a number of years that we have <laughs> been working on this together. But um, my crystal ball says that eventually um, there will be the creation of an emergency management program in every federally recognized tribe. And it'll start small and, and slowly build capacity and resiliency and preparedness uh, to, to so that, and every time that there's a disaster, it'll be a little bit less, and then it'll be a little bit less. And then uh, eventually, um, the, the what I see, this is my vision down the road, and it's just my vision, is that uh, the tribal nations and Pueblos and, and Native Alaskans are all gonna be okay, they're gonna be resilient. They have for thousands of years, but uh, it's gonna make it easier for them. Tribal emergency managers can't protect their communities alone. That requires the support of their elected leadership and collaboration with other tribal staff. We caught up with one tribal leader to discuss why investing in tribal emergency management is such a priority for him and his Pueblo. here with Governor Chavarria from the Santa Clara Pueblo. Governor, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Governor, I, I, have, I really want to know from a tribal leader's perspective why emergency management is so important. So I guess my first question for you is, tell me about your path to becoming a tribal leader and, and your emergency management experience along the way. Okay, well, I've uh, served 12 one-year terms as a governor for Santa Clara Pueblo uh, in New Mexico. I first served in 2006, 7, and 8. I worked as a, a wildland firefighter. I worked as a conservation officer. I worked as a water quality coordinator, a forestry director. And so since 2014 to present, I've been elected as governor for Santa Clara. Uh, so however, in 2011, I was a forestry director. And at that time, we had the Los Conscious Fire, which was the largest fire in New Mexico history. And so my passion is hunting, fishing, you know, living off the land utilizing the resources, and then when fire uh, has a devastating impact on our ways of life, uh, then in New Mexico, you get the monsoon seasons, uh, July, August, September, you get the, the rains. And, and so we were, we were devastated by those wildfires and then floods. And so at that time, we didn't have an emergency management department. because so as a forestry director, I assumed that responsibility. So I had to learn because it was our land. It was our traditional cultural properties. It was a secret landscape. It was the infrastructure. Now we don't do it for ourselves as uh, tribal people. Who else is going to do it for us? It's better for us to tell our own story because we live there day in and day out. And so all that is very critical, having a good uh, foundation. And then now having to create an emergency management department is very important. But you have to understand the incident command system you have to enter down the, the qualifications, the criteria, uh, which is very important, but also understanding FEMA, 
and all the other federal agencies or policies and procedures so that they can utilize their existing authorities to help tribal nations when they're in dire need, uh, especially as it deals with uh, natural disasters. Did you find that it was difficult to start up your emergency management program right after that fire? Or was it something that, uh, you know, that took all time? It was a process. I think what was very uh, fortunate is that we had uh, our past tribal sheriff, Regis Chavarria. Uh, that was his background. And so he helped the public to create policies, procedures, and create that department. But it was challenging because there's not no money out there. And so the Pueblo had to put its own financial resources to hire, uh, to create policies and procedures, uh, understanding um, all the authorities that this department would have. But again, he had to be, so we hired an ex-police officer because you have to understand emergency management, the structure, the system. And it's not just fire and floods. It's also car accidents. It's also hazardous spills. There's all these things that are very important. And in order to find a good individual that has, has awareness, uh, it's very critical, but also takes into account the cultural sensitivity of us as Santa Clara people, because that's who we are, is that cultural sensitivity uh, that we have to the land, to the landscape. And we can't go away from that, but that has to be protected. But how do you do that in today's time when you deal with these uh unfortunate disasters that we all face in Indian country. Absolutely. And, and we're recording this at the uh, National Advisory Council meeting uh, in Oklahoma. And, you know, a lot of what some of the emergency managers here are, are thinking about is the future of emergency management from a tribal leader's perspective. Uh, what do you think the future looks like for your emergency management program and really across the entire emergency management landscape for tribal governments? You know, all the tribes are, are different. We're all unique. Uh, some are large tribes, some are small tribes. And if you don't have that financial resource, how do you hire individuals? And so that's what's very important. So maybe a smaller tribe needs to come together as a consortium, meaning maybe three, four, five, ten tribes come together, pool your resources. But then again, it's the geographic location the miles that you're going to have to cover if you come to that type of scenario. But, you know, emergency management is priority. Uh, we don't ask for any disasters. You know, I think some of us face hurricanes, some of us face tornadoes. Like for us in New Mexico, it be the fires and the floods, maybe earthquakes. But then we also have the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is only eight uh, air miles to the south of Santa Clara. And so they transport this hazardous materials, the hazardous waste, and they utilize the State Road 30 as a corridor. So what if an accident happens? You got to be prepared. If you're not prepared and qualified, then how do you deal with that type of disaster? How do you deal with that type of incident? So it's very important that we build up our internal capacities and capabilities, again, to do it for ourselves and not having to rely on someone else. Again, that goes back to telling our story because we know how we utilize our, the resources, but we know our community uh, better. That's, that's a great point. And I guess my only other question would be, you know, if other tribal leaders are thinking about putting together uh, an emergency management program mm -hmm. or starting an emergency management program, do you have any advice that you would give them or any first steps that might help them along the way? I think it's reaching out to your other uh, 
Pueblos, tribes, and nations that already have an established system and asking them, we have to share our knowledge, share our resources. We're a technical uh, assistance to provide that information so that they don't have to start from scratch. You know, sharing our policies, sharing our procedures, but understanding that this is the criteria that that director needs. It's not just anybody off the street. You got to have make sure to have training and understand that system. And so for certain uh, federal agencies, like for FEMA, you have to have a, have a hazard mitigation plan. You have to have all these systems in place. And so when a disaster occurs, you have all those structures already identified, the documents ready to go. But again, we say we don't want to wish anything bad on anyone. But again, if something were to happen, if you're not prepared, then that makes it more difficult. So it's very important for those tribal leaders, their tribal council, their administration to reach out to other tribes, uh, pueblos and nations that already have established uh, structures in place and are utilizing that uh, and sharing our expertise and sharing our knowledge is very critical. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast. Thank you.